Well, I invite you for the final time, at least for a while, to turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As we will endeavor to finish this chapter today, I believe this is the 51st week that we've been in the epistle of the 1 Corinthians. And God has certainly had many wonderful things to say to us thus far, and I trust that he will yet have some things to say to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and let me remind you that we're very thankful for chapter and verse divisions, yet they're not inspired. And when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he did not write 1 Corinthians in 16 chapters with neat little verse divisions. And because they're not inspired, they're not infallible. And sometimes the man who inserted those verse and chapter divisions uh, did so in an unfortunate place. And we have that in our text today because verse 1 of chapter 11 really is, is firmly rooted in the same train of thought uh, as verse 33 of chapter 10. So I'm going to preach today from verses 31 down to verse 1 of chapter 11. Let me read our text for us, beginning at verse 31 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. These are the words of God. Whether therefore ye eat, or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men, in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. In verses 25 down through verse 30, Paul details a very practical employment of the principle that Christian maturity leads us to limit our liberties out of a love for God and a love for our brothers and sisters. Last week I preached part one of uh, the limitation of our liberties, and today we're going to consider part two under that same title, as Paul will now bring this discussion to a close by taking a step back and presenting a final explanation of this principle. The principle, of course, is that there are times in the Christian life when for love to God and love to our fellow brother in Christ, we are called to limit or abstain from those things which we naturally have the liberty to do. And so the logical question is, well, what is the basis for such a, a, an abstention? What is the basis for limiting our liberties? You've just said we have the right to do it. Now you're saying that there's times when we shouldn't do it, even though we have the right to do it. What, what gives? Well, that's what Paul is going to answer for us in this text. In these verses that I've just read to you, Paul is summing up all that he's taught on this topic thus far, and he's presenting a final exhortation to live out these instructions. Now, it's taken us several months to work through chapter 10. Uh, not just chapter 10, but this section of 1 Corinthians that began in uh, chapter 8 that is all dealing with this theme of Christian liberty and the topic of meats sacrificed to idols. And I know that we're all ready to move on to the next heading. But we would do well, before we do that, 
to give Paul our focus and to pay close attention to how he brings this conversation to an end. I want you to consider what we've learned thus far in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. We've learned that knowledge divorced from love produces a selfish pride that makes you destructive to your fellow believers. And in this context, the knowledge refers to a knowledge of your Christian liberties. Yes, you know what you have the right to do, but you must let love, not a brazen insistence on your rights, be the force that guides your conduct. Then we learn that we are to take heed of our own lives, lest our liberties become a stumbling block, lest we abuse our liberties to our own peril. Paul says the end of chapter 9, that it would be better for us to never eat meat again. That is, to make no use of our liberties than to go on offending our brothers and sisters. Remember, Paul made that emphatic statement. He said, I will eat no meat while the world stands. If that's what it means, to not offend my brother. And when we talk about offending our brother, we're not just uh, talking about doing something that, that... is personally upsetting to them, but we're talking about engaging in conduct that causes guilt to rise up in their conscience, that causes them to stumble in the faith, that causes them to to live in a gray, questionable area that's never safe for the child of God to live. And let me say to you this morning, if there's an area of your life that that in your own conscience you have no peace about, you're, you're living in the gray zone, let me urge you and exhort you to get out of the gray zone. Uh, to repent of whatever that questionable thing is, and to only do those things that you are able to do with a heart of faith and a clear conscience before God. Then we saw that Paul was a premier example of someone who abstained from his liberties for the good of the church. Chapter 9, what is that chapter all about? Even though he had a right to financial compensation from the Corinthians, he did not avail himself to it. He willingly took no salary from that church, though he had the right to do so. Why did he do that? Well, for the good of the church. For his own testimony's sake. And then he gets into chapter 10, and we learn from the examples of Old Testament Israel about the dangers of abusing and perverting our liberties to condone behavior that God never Gave us the freedom to do. Listen, if God has forbidden something in his word, we don't have the liberty to do it. And if God has commanded something in his word, we don't have the liberty to leave it undone. The Israelites fell into sexual immorality. They they fell into idolatry, all in the name of their Christian liberty. They exemplify the dastard consequences of abusing Christian liberty as a license to sin. Furthermore, we saw how the Corinthians were falling into this same pit as some of the members of the church were attending worship at the pagan temple under the auspices of Christian liberty. But Paul, in no uncertain terms, declares to the church that to worship false gods is to fellowship with demons. It is to commit the sin of idolatry. And that is something that we do not have the liberty to do. And then recently, last Lord's Day, we considered Paul's practical instructions on two subsidiary issues. Uh, Remember meats that were sold in the public market? Uh, 
And Paul said what? Well, if the meat is sold in a public market, you have the liberty to go to the market, to buy the meat, to take it home, to thank God for it, and to eat it because you're not consuming it in a religious context. And then we saw how Paul applies this principle to the issue of meals in private homes. If an unbeliever invites you to their home, you have the liberty not only to go, but you have the liberty to go and to eat whatever is set before you. Now as we near the end of chapter 10, Paul will make his final remarks and reinforce the grounds of this principle. Why should we limit our liberties? Why ought we not indulge in our rights however we want, with no concern for anyone but ourselves? Why does love sometimes compel us to abstain from even those things which we have the right to do? This is, this is mature conversation. Because immaturity has a very linear way of, of looking at things. Immaturity just says, if I have the right to do it, I'm going to do it, and I don't care what anybody says or thinks. Uh, But what Paul has been trying to get us to understand is that Christian maturity raises us to a higher standard in which we no longer uh, only consider ourselves, but we think about others, how our actions affect others, and chiefly, as we'll see, how our actions are viewed in the eyes of God. These are the questions uh, that the explanation of this principle seeks to answer. But before we jump into this text, which is the explanation of the principle, I want you to understand what a grace it is for God to even give us such an explanation. Do you realize that God does not owe us an explanation for anything that he said to us in his word? God does not owe us a reason why for any of his demands upon our lives. He's God, you're not. Yet all throughout the Bible, he is pleased to give them. He oftentimes explains himself. How might a parent answer their child when a parent gives a command or lays down a rule and then the child says, why? Well, the common answer in many homes is, you probably heard this, you've probably said this, because I said so. Well, there are times when such an answer is appropriate, especially when the parent detects a rebellious attitude that is the motive for asking why. However, if the why was asked from a sincere heart of honesty, and the child was genuinely seeking to understand the reasoning behind the command, and all you said to them was, because I said so, you would be doing a very poor job of parenting. Such an answer would not build the confidence of the child in the wisdom of the parents. It would only frustrate and provoke them to wrath. Now, we ought never ask God why, from a rebellious heart that seeks to challenge his authority over our lives. But God, because he is a loving, kind, and gracious father, welcomes us to ask why he does what he does and commands what he commands when our sincere desire is to learn more about him and his ways. You don't have to be afraid of asking God why. And so in this 
chapter, God has said, there's times when you need to limit your Christian liberties. And now we say, well, why? (laughs) Why must we do that? Why can't we live our lives in a headlong pursuit of whatever we want to do? You see, our motives matter to God. That's the beautiful thing about the Christian religion. It's a relational religion. God not only wants us to do what he says, he wants us to do what he says for the right reason. And to that end, he's pleased to condescend and explain himself to us, though he's not obligated to do so in the slightest. So what we have in our text is an explanation. It's an explanation. Paul has laid out the principle of limiting our liberties, and he's detailed what such a limitation would look like in several scenarios. So you can think of this concluding passage as the divine answer to the question, why must we limit our liberties? And to this question, he gives four answers. Here they are. The the explanation of this principle, why must we limit our liberties? Number one, for the glorification of God. Number two, for the consideration of our neighbor. Number three, for the salvation of sinners. And four, for the emulation of Christ. So we find in our text, and this is the Christian ethic that, that God wants to instill in us as it pertains to our Christian liberty. So let's look at these one at a time. We'll spend more time on some than others, but I do want us to consider all of these. Number one, the explanation of this principle, we limit our liberties for the glorification of God. Notice how Paul begins in verse 31. He says, Wherefore, or Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. This verse is no doubt one of the most quoted and misquoted portions of Scripture in all of the Bible. Uh, It's kind of like verse 13 when we mentioned that earlier. uh, This idea that God is faithful and he's not going to suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able and how that is often misquoted. And the reason why verse 13 and verse 31 are so often misquoted is the same reason why all misquoted verses are misquoted. And that is that they are taken out of their context. And any time you take scripture out of its context... Uh, You can use it to make it say whatever you want it to say. Uh, But faithful exposition and faithful biblical preaching endeavors to preach the Bible and teach the Bible and read and understand the Bible in the way that God gave the Bible. Now, as I've explained before, we are certainly able and we should. Okay, we should do this. We should make applications of Scripture that exceed its specific context. If we couldn't do that, then verse 10 would have no relevance to us because the specific context of chapter 10 is what? Meat sacrificed to idols. And if we weren't allowed to go beyond that context and apply it to our lives, we we would be kind of a futile chapter because we're not struggling on a daily basis, at least not here in America, with the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. So we should make applications that exceed the specific narrow context of Scripture, but we can only do that rightly if we first ground that Scripture in the context God gave it. We don't come to a verse of Scripture and ask, well, what does this mean to you? Well, what do you think it means? Well, what it means to me is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what did God mean when he said it? 
And once I know what God meant when he said it, then I can rightly apply it to my life in specific circumstances and situations. With that said, let me give you the specific context of verse 31 and then make a broad application and a universal application. The specific context of verse 31 is obvious. Okay, When Paul speaks of eating and drinking, notice he says, whether therefore ye eat or drink, when he speaks of eating and drinking, he is obviously referring to eating and drinking those things offered unto idols. That's the context of this whole chapter and this whole section. The argument of the Corinthians was that they could eat meat because they had the right to do so, right? That, that was their position. What they failed to understand is that there's something more important than having the right to do what you are doing, and that's glorifying God in what you're doing. You, you understand the difference? You might have the right to do something that in cer- certain instances does not glorify God. And Paul says, in those instances, you don't do it. But you eat and you drink only in those instances when not only you have the right to do it, but also you glorify God through doing it. That's the principle that's being laid out here. Just think about how different their actions would have been. This whole section of 1 Corinthians would have been irrelevant if their attitude had been, instead of asking, do we have the right to do this? They asked, Will doing this bring glory to God? Does it bring glory to God to go to the pagan temple and participate in an idolatrous feast? That's what they were doing. They were so obsessed with, well, we have the right, we have the right. They didn't even stop to consider the glory of God. Does it bring glory to God to worship idols in the temple on Friday and worship God in the church on Sunday? Does it bring glory to God to flaunt our liberties and cause our brothers and sisters to stumble? The Corinthians didn't ask these questions because they didn't want to ask these questions, and they didn't want to ask these questions because they knew that the resounding answer is an emphatic no. It's an emphatic no. Previously, Paul stated an allowance for eating meat. What was the allowance? Well, in public markets and in private homes. Never in the temple as part of religious ceremony. But here in verse 31, Paul adds an indispensable qualifier to that allowance. Partake of the meat only if you can do so to the glory of God. That's the specific context. Let me now make a a more broad application. Only use your Christian liberties when you can do so to the glory of God. It applies to all of our Christian liberties, not just the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. This is especially important for those of us today who don't regularly struggle with the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. No, we don't, but guess what? We do struggle with other areas of Christian liberty. There are things in this church that some of you have the liberty to partake in, and some of you do not have the liberty to partake in. Your conscience allows you to do something that your brother's conscience does not allow him to do. And guess what? His conscience allows him to do something that your conscience doesn't allow you to do. And in those areas, the glory of God should be the ultimate litmus test for how we act in specific circumstances. 
What verse 31 teaches us is that we are free to partake of our Christian liberties only, only when we can do so to the glory of God. And and brothers and sisters, this is the entire reason why God has ordained that there be such a thing as Christian liberty. I, I, I thought about this passage. I ruminated about this passage. Follow, follow me here for a second. Let me philosophize this a bit. Why did God give us a conscience and then leave a sanctified amount of ambiguity pertaining to various issues of life? In other words, why didn't God just give us a really thick rule book that meticulously governs every minute aspect of our lives? Some people think he did, right? You, you, you drive a little bit further west and you get out in the woods and you'll, you'll meet a sect called the Amish that think that God has given them a rule book that governs every minute aspect of their lives down to the length of their socks. Well, if God had done that, we wouldn't even need to discuss Christian liberty. But that's not what God did. No, he gave us a Bible which is his complete, holy, and infallible word, and it gives us general precepts, general commands, some specific commands, but then it leaves a lot of things, the length of your socks not being one of the least of them, up to your own conscience and the decision of your own conscience. Why did God do that? Because he receives optimal glory when we use our consciences and seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit to bring Him a peculiar glory in every unique circumstance. Let me illustrate it for you this way, with the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. If God had simply said, do not eat meat sacrificed to idols under any circumstance, period, He would only be glorified when through our straightforward obedience we abstain from the meat. Never would it even be a possibility for him to be glorified through us partaking of the meat. But that's not how he set it up, is he? God has designed our Christian liberty so that there are times when we can glorify him by not eating the meat, and there are times when we can glorify him by partaking in the meat. So you say, what what brings glory to God? Uh, Eating the meat or not eating the meat? Well, it depends. Depends on the context in which you partake, who you're with when you partake, all of these different factors. Why all of these different factors? So that God can receive glory upon glory in all of these different circumstances in our lives. When you go to the meat market and you use the money that God has blessed you with to buy meat and you bring it home to the wife God has given you and she cooks it up and you sit around the table with the children that God has given to you, And you pray and you say, Father, thank you for your gracious provisions. Bless this meal which we are about to partake. And you eat the meat. God is glorified. But when a fellow brother comes to your home and that same meat is set before you at your table and your brother says, I'm so appreciative to be here, but I cannot eat that meat with a clear conscience. And you turn to your wife and you say, Honey, I know that you have spent several hours preparing this meal. But if we ate this meat, we would offend our brother. And we will not do that because we love him. 
and then you don't eat the meat, God is glorified. You see, what I'm saying here with this passage is it's, it's not black and white, and God has made it not black and white for a reason, so that we can glorify him in various aspects, in various circumstances of our lives. So, therefore, whether you eat or whether you don't eat, or whether you drink or whether you don't drink, or whatsoever you do or whatsoever you don't do, do it or don't do it to the glory of God. This is what it means that the glory of God is to limit our liberties. Yet there still remains a universal application. Although we've talked about the meat sacrifice to idols, and then we've talked about all of our Christian liberties, but it is right to apply verse 31 in the way that most everybody immediately takes it to, to apply universally to all aspects of our lives as human beings created by God. Fundamental to the Christian life is the purpose of doing all things to his glory. What is the chief end of man? Is it not to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Having established that specific context, that this refers to those meats sacrificed to idols, now it is appropriate to apply this exhortation to everything that we think, say, and do as human beings created by God. This is a call not to compartmentalize our lives. God does not want you to have a list of things over here that you do for his glory, and then a list of things over here that you do for the pleasure of self. In fact, God does not even want you to have a contradiction between things you do for his glory and things you do for pleasure. What God wants is for you, through Christ, to find your ultimate pleasure in glorifying him. Would to God that the Spirit would sanctify us to the point that we can stand before Him and say, Lord, there's nothing that brings me more joy than to do things that glorify You. One of the ways that we so often fail in this area of doing all things to the glory of God is by thinking that God can only be glorified in the big things. Well, surely I am to preach to the glory of God, right? I'm to raise my children to the glory of God. I'm to pastor the church to the glory of God, right? You are to conduct your marriages to the glory of God or your business to the glory of God or, you know, the big things in life. But I want you to know that I'm equally called to read to the glory of God, to listen to music to the glory of God. To mow my grass to the glory of God. To get dressed in the morning to the glory of God. And we often fail in this department of all things by thinking that, well, those, those insignificant minor details of our lives, surely God is not concerned with those, is he? Well, when God says in verse 31, whatsoever you do, what he means there is whatsoever you do, meaning all things. The exhortation culminates in an all-encompassing, all-inclusive application to every aspect of your life. And it begins, how does it begin? With something as simple as eating and drinking. Eating and drinking, one of the most basic aspects of our lives. 
We do it every day. You probably have already done this today. You will do it later today. You're going to eat and drink. And the Bible says that even in this mundane aspect, we are to do it to the glory of God. And if we don't know how to do something as basic as eat and drink to the glory of God, how will we know how to do anything to the glory of God? So here's what I want to do before we move on. I want to answer this question. What does it mean to eat and drink to the glory of God? And the reason why I want to answer that question is because I believe if we understand the principles of how we are to eat and drink to the glory of God, we can take those principles and apply it to anything. We eat and drink to the glory of God much in the the same way that we do everything else for His glory. And if you understand how to eat and drink to His glory, you'll understand how to do all things to His glory. Let me illustrate this for you. Okay, How do we eat and drink and therefore do all things to the glory of God? Number one, with a heart of thankfulness and praise to God who supplies us with all good things. We eat and drink to the glory of God when we thank Him for what He has provided. You know that little cultural prayer? I say cultural because that's really all it is in many American homes. You know, we sit down and we say some little rehearsed prayer that we don't even think about it because we've been praying the same prayer for the last 20 years and we don't even consider the words that we're saying. Why do we do that? Well, because Christians realize that God is the creator of all things. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. That includes the food on your plate. And so we pray before we partake of it. And we stop to consider that God has raised the animals and raised the crop and he's provided hands to harvest and prepare and cook and put it on this plate that I am now going to eat from. And when we remember that, with a heart of thankfulness and praise, we eat and drink to the glory of God. But we don't glorify him when we fail to remember his grace in giving us food. Do you see how that could apply to many things beyond just eating and drinking? Secondly, we eat and drink to the glory of God with a particular care to the intricacies of his gifts. A particular care to the intricacies of his gifts. When we take time to notice the flavors and the textures and all the little details... And then we praise God, not only for giving us sustenance, but making it delicious. We live in a world formed and fashioned by a sovereign creator. Don't rush by life at a speed that doesn't allow you to appreciate the intricacies of all that God has made. Christ says, of course, in a different context, but he says, consider the lily. Consider the lily. Consider a a flower in the field and all of the details that went in, the colors, the hues, the, the, the petals, the... The more we think about it, the more glorious God becomes in our minds. And it's the same with food. But we don't eat and drink to the glory of God 
when we fail to recognize his special grace in creating enjoyable flavor. So that's secondly. We want to have a particular care to the intricacies of his gifts. Thirdly, we eat and drink to the glory of God when we do so with a consideration of the impact that our actions will have on our own well-being. We eat and drink to the glory of God when we use food primarily as a means to strengthen our bodies for his service and nourish ourselves to be good stewards of the health that God has given us. That's what it means to eat and drink to the glory of God. We don't glorify him in eating and drinking when we abuse food and use it to trash our bodies, thus hindering our ability to serve him. The same is true for all of God's good gifts. And he has given us so many of them. And when we rightly use those gifts, they become a blessing to us. God has given husbands and wives the gift of intimacy, not only for procreation, but also for pleasure. And it is a good gift. But when the world abuses that gift, we see the havoc that it wreaks on society. Well, it's the same with food. What am I doing? I'm just arguing from the lesser to the greater. In chapter 6 and verse 20, God commanded us to glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Well, part of what it means to glorify God in your body is to reasonably take care of it and not run it into the ground. I'm the last to get on some kind of health seminar. I'm the last to be a model for impeccable health. But... How can we honestly come to the Bible and read what it says about the body that God has given us and how it's the temple of the Holy Spirit and and that God has given us food and God has given us a responsibility to steward His gifts and not come away thinking in some way, the way we take care of ourselves is affected by our Christian life. Part of what it means to glorify God is to not trash your body senselessly. Food can be used to nourish you and maintain good health, or it can be used to ruin your health and destroy your body. Another gift that God has given is finances and money. And you can use money for the glory of God, and you can use it to improve your life, to be a blessing to the Lord's work, to the local church, to the spread of the gospel, or you can use money to absolutely ruin yourself. We've seen it both ways, haven't we? How you choose to use food will determine in part if you're glorifying God in your body or not. When I share with people how I eat, they often say something to me like, oh, you you just live on scraps. What are you eating so light for? You don't need to lose weight. You need to gain weight. I hear that all the time. Well, what if it's not all about losing weight? What if it's about understanding my body, what I need to maintain myself and accommodate the lifestyle that I live so that I can be most useful for God and His service? He's given you a body, and He's given you that body to steward it. And when you steward it rightly, guess what? You're eating and drinking to the glory of God. But this is true for all of our liberties. How do we glorify God in the use of our liberties or in Anything that we do, we consider the impact that this action will have on our own well-being. Fourthly and lastly, 
we eat and drink to the glory of God with a consideration of the impact that our actions will have on others. On others. We eat and drink to the glory of God when we eat in a way that is edifying to others and doesn't cause needless offense. It never brings God glory to needlessly offend. Never. Key word there is needlessly. Because we don't glorify him when our manner of eating and drinking is inconsistent with the lifestyle of a disciplined, mature Christian who wants to serve others more than himself. Now why am I laboring this point about eating and drinking to the glory of God? Because these four principles I've just given you, and really, if I sat and thought about it, I'm probably sure, I'm sure we could find some more. But these principles apply far beyond just your conduct at the supper table. Apply these principles to all areas of life and you will glorify God in whatsoever you do. Consider, consider how your actions impact yourself. Consider the gifts that God has given you. Consider how your actions impact others. And when you think about your behavior and your conduct and your manner of life through these lenses, you will live a life unto the glory of God. But when all you're thinking about is me, 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 and the gratification of my immediate desires, you're going to glorify something, but it won't be God. See, our desire as Christians is for others to see the way we live our lives, the way we limit our liberties, and yes, even the way we eat and drink, and then to praise God for what they see. That's what it means to do all things to the glory of God. And this is to be our chief motive in the Christian life and in the regulation of our liberties. Yet, in the remainder of this text, Paul goes on to give even more motives. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, I thought he said there were four motives and he's just gotten through one. We're going to be here all afternoon. I I promise you we won't be. I I belabored this first point, uh, the glorification of God, because... Really what we'll see is that the other three motives in this text are subsets of that one chief motive. If we are seeking to glorify God with what we do, we'll do these other things as well. And secondly, the second thing is the consideration of our neighbor. Look at verse 32. Paul says, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. The first motive concerns our love for God, and this motive concerns our love for our neighbor. And if you're living to the glory of God, you will manifest a Christ-like love to your neighbor. This love for your neighbor will cause you to be careful so as not to use your liberties as a cause for your neighbor to stumble. Notice that no one is excluded from this admonition. He says, give none offense, neither to Jews, neither to Gentiles, nor to the church of God. What is he saying there? I I think he's saying something like this. Unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Gentiles, and the church, which is what? A saved body made up of both Jew and Gentile. Paul is covering all the bases. And he frames it in such a way that removes the possibility of us adding needless offense and calling it part of the ministry of the gospel. 
the context, again, is in relation to the use of our liberties. Paul is not saying that we are to water down our Christianity so that it doesn't offend unbelievers who are compromised, uh, or even believers, perhaps, that are lukewarm. What Paul is saying, and you, you, must, you must see this in the text, what Paul is saying is that because we have a pure and unmitigated gospel that is already offensive by itself, we don't need to add unnecessary offenses through foolish and immature behavior. If we're going to offend, and if we're going to be faithful Christians, we will offend. Let us offend with the truth of the gospel, not with the flaunting of our liberties. That's what he's saying. See, there's a very troublesome attitude, even within some circles of Christianity, that thinks that as long as what's being said is true, the manner in which it is said is irrelevant. It seems that some Christians even pride themselves in how abrasive they can be. You hear people that will say things like, well, I'm just a straight shooter. I just tell it like it is. I just call a spade a spade. No, you're probably an offensive jerk. And among your Christian liberties, being a jerk for Jesus is not one of them. This is a pitfall that is especially prevalent in younger men. I say that because I have seen this flaw in myself. When I'm so concerned about preaching the truth and being right that I just don't care what anybody thinks about how I say what I'm saying. If they're offended, that's their problem. You ever had that attitude? I'm, I'm right. If they're offended, that's their problem. Well, not so fast. If they're offended because you presented the truth in love and your desire was to be a blessing to them and to profit them and to see them come to the knowledge of the truth and they were offended, then yes, that is their problem. But if they're offended, partly because of the truth and partly because of the arrogant, bombastic way in which you said it, then you have a problem as well. By His grace, God has allowed me to see that kind of attitude as a gross manifestation of spiritual immaturity. So this second motive calls us to limit our Christian liberties when so doing would prevent needless offense our neighbor. Thirdly, it's the third motive here for the limitation of our liberties. It's the salvation of sinners. The salvation of sinners. Notice in verse 33. Paul says, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Do we not hear Paul echoing his own words from chapter 9 when he told us that he becomes all things to all men. Paul is one who would gladly give up his liberties if it means that more people could come to have a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we have to be clear about what Paul doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that he will please all men by any means necessary. Is that not the great sin of the church today? 
They perverted this principle into an ethic that says that the end justifies the means. And therefore, they'll do whatever it takes to draw in people from church to, to church. Whatever it takes. Whatever is pleasing to all men, that's what they'll do. If they're pleased by a rock and roll concert, then let's give them a rock and roll concert. If they're pleased by 15-minute sermonettes and no exposition of the Bible, then let's give them that. If men are pleased when we cancel worship and have an Easter egg hunt, then by all means, let's cancel worship and have an Easter egg hunt. Draw them in. And if the preaching of the cross and the pure worship of God doesn't please men, then we'll replace it with something that does. This, of course, is not at all what Paul has in mind. Paul seeks to please all men in all things in matters of indifference, not to distract from the presentation of the cross, but to remove distractions from the presentation of the cross. Do you know how we know what Paul meant here? Because we have the book of Acts, and we have his epistles, where we can see exactly how he conducted his ministry. The prime example of this in Paul's ministry, can you think of a, of a scenario in which Paul did something to please men so that he could further his proclamation of the gospel? How about the way in which he handled the circumcisions of Timothy and Titus, respectively? There was no demand to have Timothy circumcised. Paul knew that Timothy was not obliged by the ceremonial law of the Old Testament since he was living on this side of the cross. But because Timothy was half-Jew... Paul knew that having him circumcised would remove a major stumbling block that might otherwise hinder his ministry. So what did he do? He had Timothy circumcised. However, when the Judaizers demanded that Titus, who was a Gentile, be circumcised, Paul absolutely refused as a matter of principle. You say... Well, if Paul would have just conceded and had Titus circumcised, maybe Titus could have had a profitable ministry among the Jews. Yes, but to have Titus circumcised would have been to concede to something that's unbiblical. And so, as a matter of principle, Paul says, no, I'm not going to please you in this matter. But Paul never did this at the expense of the truth, nor did he ever sanction any error. He goes on to explain, he says... Here's how I please all men. Not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many. We know that pleasing all men does not mean compromising the truth. Why? Because compromising the truth doesn't profit anyone. It doesn't profit anyone. It doesn't profit anyone to, if a doctor is looking at the the, the reports, looking at the diagnosis and sees that the patient is terminally ill and then runs in and says, you're going to be fine. It doesn't profit anyone. And it doesn't profit us to say to sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins, you're going to be fine. We have to say, you're not going to be fine. But we have the cure Mm -hmm. to your malady. And though the cure might hurt, and I know that I've just committed the worst sin. You know what the worst sin you could ever commit in society today is? Telling somebody they're wrong. And so I, I've just committed the worst sin. I've told you, you're wrong, and God is right. But the good thing is, you don't have to stay wrong. 
you can be right with God. Through Jesus Christ. And only through Jesus Christ. Not through good works. Uh, Not through some other way of getting there on your own, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. No. Paul says, "I'm, I'm not seeking my own profit. By the way, if you're seeking your own profit, the worst thing you can ever do is to spend your life preaching the gospel. If, if your own pro- by your own profit, if you mean wealth, likability, material blessings and possessions. No, but if you want to spend a life seeking the profit of others, what better could you do for them than to share the message of eternal life in Jesus Christ? He goes on, he says, he says, that they may be saved. I'm seeking their profit, that they may be saved. What kind of profit, Paul? Uh, do you seek the profit uh, of, of their physical well-being? You know, we're going to go on a mission trip and we're going to go to some foreign country and we're going to pass out water bottles and pat everybody on the back and never mention Christ? Is that what you're talking about? That's going to profit them, right, Paul? No, that's going to make them comfortable on their way to hell. Oh, I want to profit people, Paul says, that they might be saved. And the only way I'm going to do that is if I remove all distractions, set my liberties to the side, and in love preach the truth to them. May we have this attitude that Paul had and say, I'm here for the gospel. I'm here for souls. I am here to take as many people to heaven with me as I possibly can. And if that means laying aside my liberties, sacrificing my cultural comforts, then so be it. May it not be said of us that we're more willing to offend sinners with our political opinions or our cultural preferences or whatever the case may be than we are to share with them the gospel of Christ. It's a convicting thought to think about, but the truth is that most Christians probably spend way more time debating politics with liberals than they do sharing the gospel with sinners. May it not be said of us that we took so much pride in, in who we are and our culture and our, all of these different things that we failed to reach out to anyone that was different than us. <laughs> to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to the church of God, all men, that they might be saved, Paul says. Let us set aside these things, these liberties. And we might have a greater opportunity to share the soul-saving message of the cross. And then lastly, why do we set aside our liberties? Verse 1 of chapter 11, for the emulation of Christ. The emulation of Christ. Paul says, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. That's not arrogant, by the way, to say that. Because it's also true, when I don't follow Christ, don't follow me. Uh, Paul is the example here, but Christ alone is the ultimate pattern after which we are called to live. You want to live a life to the glory of God? You want to live a life where you're considerate of others? You want to live a life where you are working to profit others so that they might be saved? Then you need to emulate our Lord Jesus Christ. Back, what, 20, 30 years ago, the, the trend of WWJD, 
uh, became so popular. Everybody was wearing the bracelets. What would Jesus do? Well, the good thing about that is, is we don't have to sit and ask what would Jesus do. We can look and see what he did. And what he did was lay aside everything in order to accomplish redemption. What he did was forfeit all of the comforts that you and I enjoy. The Son of Man, he said, has not a place to lay his head. Think about that when you go home to your comfortable house and you get in your comfortable bed and remember that Jesus Christ, in order to accomplish redemption, forfeited such a comfort. What he did was he took no part in his liberties. He had no luxuries. He did not live for himself. But instead, he gave all and he became a servant to all. And he now calls us to emulate him. To as he loved, we are to love. A new commandment I give you. Love one another even as I have loved you. Well, what's new about that commandment? It's not that we are to love one another because that commandment is found all the way back in Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. What's new about that commandment is that with the coming of Christ, we have the greatest demonstration of sacrificial, other-serving love that we've ever had. Our Lord descended from his throne where he sat at the right hand of the Father, where he daily lived to make intercession for us, and he came down off of that throne, and he took upon himself the form of a man, and he lived a life that you and I could never live. He was tempted at all points like as we were, yet without sin. And then he took his active Positive, earned righteousness. It was his righteousness. It was not your righteousness. You have no righteousness of your own. Only man that was ever righteous took his righteousness. And he went to the cross. And there on the cross of Calvary, he gave his life. He shed his blood. He suffered and he died. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And the righteousness that he had was given to all those who receive Him through faith in your sins. Every time when you haven't lived for the glory of God, every time when you haven't considered your neighbor, every time when you haven't sought the salvation of sinner, and every time when you haven't emulated Him, every act of transgression was imputed to Him. And He suffered under the wrath of God. And He was buried so that you and your sins could be buried, but three days later He rose again, so that you and not your sins could rise again, so that you could walk with him in a newness of life. That's the gospel. It's the gospel. And how that gospel should have a profound impact on the way that you now live if you claim to believe it. May we be like our Lord, who lived and glorified his Father in heaven as he saved his people. May we give our lives, set our liberties aside, and when we do use them, we're using them because we can glorify God in them. But we're not here to indulge in our flesh and our desires and our passions. We're here to serve the Lord and His people. This brings us to the end of this three-chapter-long discussion of Christian liberties and meat sacrifice to idols, and Paul concludes it in a very Pauline way by pointing us to Jesus Christ. He ends this section by pointing us right back to what Christ did on Calvary. See, the Corinthians had a minimalistic 
ethic that caused them to ask, what are my rights and what am I allowed to do? And I'm afraid that that is the ethic of many who call themselves Christians in our day and age. What am I allowed to do and how much can I get away with? Don't have a minimalist ethic. Have a maximalist ethic. And start asking the questions, what can I do that would most glorify God? And what can I do that would not bring any offense to my neighbor? And what can I do that would be most profitable for the salvation of sinners? And what could I do that would be most like the Lord Jesus Christ? Could you imagine how different our churches would be? How different society would be if we were all asking those questions? See, I haven't been pastoring for very long. But it's been long enough for multiple instances of folks coming to me and asking, Pastor, as a Christian, can I do fill in the blank? Well, this is a question that you must ask. But that's just the first question. Don't stop there. But go on and ask, now that I know I'm allowed to do it, let me ask, does doing it glorify God? Does doing it profit my neighbor? Does doing it emulate the Lord Jesus Christ? And let us live our lives based on these principles And as we go out, and as we face the week ahead, let me challenge you to consider these four motives in everything you do. The quote-unquote big things and the small things. That we might live a life sold out for His glory. That we might use our liberties the way He's intended us to use our liberties. And that we might be a people that follow the example and the pattern that was set forth in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us. And I thank you for getting us safely through the end of this text and trust that you will continue to speak to our hearts as we uh, go through and continue to meditate upon the book of 1 Corinthians. Father, we love you, we praise you, we glorify you, we magnify you, and we ask your blessings upon the remainder of this Lord's day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.